on Psalm 32 uh, so that now you can close your Bibles so that we can uh, go over our memory verse from Psalm 32 without cheating. I'm looking at you. I know there's some cheaters out there. That's why you're in church today, because you need the gospel, right? So, um, all right, with, a, with nothing but a blank screen and a closed Bible, can we do Psalm 32, 5? I acknowledged my sin to you. You got to help me out. I'm, I, see, I, I, got all, I got all messed up about the cheating, and now I'm messing up on my memory. Okay. Huh? And? Oh, that's helpful. <laughs> All right, let's try it again. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Psalm 32, 5. You know what the great thing is about having five Sundays in the month of October? As we get one more week to polish that up, and by we, I mean me. (laughs) Open your Bibles now to Psalm 32. And as you open them, uh, we're going to begin by reading this whole psalm together. And so if you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, sufficient word. In Psalm 32, the Holy Spirit says, a mascal of David, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Salah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Salah. Therefore, Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Salah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Why do we share testimonies? 
Why do we offer testimonials? So if you've been here in the last couple months, we've recently had some, baptist- uh, some baptisms. And from the baptistry, those who have been baptized give their testimony about how the Lord changed their life and saved them from their sins. Uh, it's, it's been a while now, but there's been um, uh, several instances just since, since I've been at Rocky Point where we've had uh, teams that go on mission trips and come back and give a testimony about what God did through those mission trips. Uh, just a couple of examples, but why do we do that? Why do we share testimonies? Well, there's a number of reasons, but one reason we share testimonies is because we want others to experience the joy that we ourselves have experienced. We share a testimony from the baptistry about how God saved us from our sins because we want other people to be saved from their sins. We share a testimony about going on a mission trip because we want other people to experience the joy of going and crossing these cultural boundaries to go to a a place where it's not rich with the gospel and present the gospel and, and provide teaching and the word of God. We share our testimony because we want others to experience the joy that we have experienced. Well, Psalm 32 is a testimony of David. David isn't just giving instruction about abstract theology that he happens to know information about. He is given a personal testimony. As H.B. Charles Jr. Is, uh, uh, says often, uh, David is not a paid advertiser. He is a satisfied customer. And as he writes Psalm 32 and gives it to us, David writes about the joy that he knows now that he is right with God. So that we, his hearers, or the singers of Psalm 32, might experience the same joy that David personally has in God. And so my message to us today is don't miss out on the joy of being right with God. Don't miss out on the joy of being right with God. Well, how how do we make sure we're not missing out on the joy of being right with God? Three encouragements from Psalm 32. First, consider the flourishing of forgiveness. Consider the flourishing of forgiveness. See this in verses 1 through 5. David begins this psalm, this testimony, by describing how the person who is forgiven by God is the person who flourishes. Look at verses 1 and 2 again of Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That word blessed is one of my favorite words in the whole Bible. It's the Hebrew word Asherah, where the name Asher comes from. Uh, You might know we named our uh, son Asher from this word, specifically from Psalm 1, uh, verse 1. That word translated blessed means happy, flourishing, thriving. It's a word that describes the good life. If you want to know what God thinks a person living their best life looks like, 
Find the word blessed in Scripture and trace what follows. That's God's vision of the good life. And what David says here in Psalm 32 is the good life is the forgiven life. The good life is the forgiven life. You don't know flourishing as a human until your sins have been forgiven by God. Apart from his forgiveness, God holds our sin against us. We bear the weight of our sin on our own. And on the other hand, we're also exposed in our sinfulness and ashamed in our guilt before God. But when God forgives, that burden is removed. That's the sense of the word forgiven. God removes the burden and the weight of sin. When he forgives, he covers our shame, our exposure. When God forgives, he no longer counts your sin against you. This is one part of the doctrine that the Bible calls justification. Justification. Imagine the the lightness that comes from knowing after all I've done, even the worst thing I can think of that I've ever done. Imagine the lightness of knowing God doesn't hold any of it against me. That's freedom. That's flourishing. And that's justification. But there's more. David says that flourishing involves not just not having our sins counted against us. It also involves uh, being free from deceit in our spirits. He says that in verse 2, in, in whose spirit there is no deceit. And this is important, this is crucial that we see this, because if we were just, you know, always sinning, slaves to sin, but forgiven, that is not the good life. A life where we're just sinning all the time, but hey, we don't have to pay the penalty for it. That is not the good life. That is not flourishing. An unchanged sinner is not a person who is flourishing. The good life is freedom, and the freedom that God offers in Christ is freedom not just from the penalty of sin, as good as that is, the freedom that God offers in Christ is freedom also from the power of sin over our everyday life, the power of sin to control us and make us rebel against God. Jesus frees us when we trust in him and his death in our place. He frees us from the power of sin such that we can be a person in whose spirit there is no deceit and experience the flourishing, not just of not having our sins counted against us, but also being free from sin in our practical everyday lives by his grace. Now, there's more on that to come as we continue in Psalm 32. But for now, I want us to consider the question, how do we get in on this flourishing? How does this flourishing that David describes become real for us? Well, David answers that question by recounting his own personal journey toward this flourishing of forgiveness. 
David recounts is his personal experience of confessing sin, but first he begins with remembering what it was like before he confessed his sin to God. Look again at verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Salah. David describes this picture of agony. And if you know what guilt feels like, you know there is an agony when you are honest about just the reality of your sin. He describes this feeling of being eaten up inside. He describes a heaviness, just walking around feeling heavy by the awareness of sin. And specifically, the heaviness he describes is the heaviness of the heavy hand of God. God's hand being heavy on him. Uh, if you were in the, the first Samuel study, you might remember there was a, uh, a story about when the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. And uh, whenever the, wherever the Ark was, uh, God sent judgment on this community of, of tumors. And the text says that God's hand was heavy upon that community. That's the picture here. It's, it's God's hand of judgment, the weight of that hand resting on a sinner's conscience. It's the heaviness of guilt, the heaviness of knowing that you have sinned against God. It's heaviness that is wearying. It's, it's heaviness that causes our strength to vaporize. That's what it's like not having brought our sin to God. Now, so here's this word, salah, or selah, if you prefer. So you probably know we named our firstborn, our daughter, Selah. And we picked that name because we thought it was, well, we thought it was pretty. Um, but also, you know, it's, it's biblical, it's musical. Um, and so we, we, we chose that name for those reasons. But we also chose it knowing that no one knows exactly what that word means. And we're kind of, you know, cursing her to a life of, oh, what does your name mean? Ah, uh, well, scholars are divided. We're not really sure, you know, just every, every time someone asks her. But anyway, um, as we were naming her, one of the translations that we were aware of that we really liked um, was this idea of, of pause or quiet or still. And we thought to ourselves, man, wouldn't it be great to have a kid who lived up to that name, right? It was after Selah was born that we learned it can also be translated crescendo, loud, listen up. <laughs> well, uh, she definitely lives up more to that <laughs> translation. Uh, but in Psalm 32, if you look at the context of Psalm 32, I think that's probably the best translation of this word in this context as well. Uh, listen up. I think if you take that word, salah, in Psalm 32, and you just replace it every time with the words, listen up, it makes a lot of sense of what David is doing in this psalm. Because every time we see that word, salah, David is about to say something relevant. 
He is about to say something that is highly applicable for his hearers. He has just stated a truth, and then he is going to say, Salah, listen up, this is for you. Okay, so that being said, listen up to verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Salah. How can we experience the flourishing, the blessedness that David describes? This verse right here. David gives us a spirit-inspired roadmap to flourishing. How do we deal with sin? How do we experience the flourishing that David describes? Let's walk through verse 5. And here are four practical steps for how we can walk the roadmap to flourishing. How we can deal with sin and bring it to God. Number one, acknowledge your sin as sin. Acknowledge, acknowledge your sin as sin. David knew what he had done. He knew what it was. It was sin. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. Sin is not a mistake. Sin is not an accident. It's not that I messed up or I made some bad choices or I had a lapse in judgment. Sin is an offense against God. It is a violation against his perfect law. Sin is a rebellion against our creator. Sin is a rejection of God himself. If we are going to experience the flourishing that David describes from being forgiven of sin, the first thing we have to do is acknowledge that we are sinners. Acknowledge the grotesqueness of our sin, the reality of our sin, the wickedness of our sin. We must acknowledge sin as sin. Second, don't cover up your sin. Don't cover up your sin. Sort of the other side of the coin of acknowledging our sin. Don't cover it up. What are some ways that we cover up our sins? We downplay sin by making excuses. Saying things like, well, I did that, but... And then giving a justification. Well, maybe I, I shouldn't have done that, but... And then giving these circumstances where obviously the right thing to do is actually to sin in that case. Another way we cover up our sin is by trying to just do more good to balance it out or to make up for it. We might even try to cover our sin by by hiding it from others or thinking we can hide it from God. Or maybe if we just ourselves block it out of our memory and totally forget that thing that I did 15 years ago. And if I just forget about it, and, and if I can't remember it, then surely God can't remember it. Well, here's the problem with that. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Don't cover up your sin. God will not cover your sin with forgiveness 
if you are covering up your sin in self-righteousness. Don't cover your sin. Three, confess your sin to God. Confess your sin to God. Bring your sin directly to God himself. David said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Bring your sin directly to God himself. Admit that whatever your sin is, even if it's a sin against another person, that that sin is a sin against God. In a very similar psalm to this, Psalm 51, David prays to God against you, you only, have I sinned? And if you know the context of Psalm 51, this is a prayer of confession that David prays after his sin with Bathsheba, of uh, committing, uh, committing a, a rape against her, uh, a sin against Uriah, uh, murdering him. So these are real people that he really sinned against, and yet David recognizes the reality that ultimately those grave sins against people are sins that are ultimately against God such that he can even say, against you, you only have I sinned. Admit your sin to God. Don't just admit to yourself that you're not a good person. Don't just admit to yourself that you're a sinner. Don't just admit to other people that you are a sinner. Take it directly to God. Bring your sin to the one that you sinned against. Bring your sin to the only one who can forgive you of your sin and give you the flourishing that David describes in Psalm 32. Direct your confession to God personally and confess your sin to God. Acknowledge your sin as sin. Don't cover up your sin. Confess your sin to God and then forth receive God's forgiveness receive God's forgiveness. We can rest confidently in God's forgiveness because it has been secured by the blood of Jesus. When we confess our sin, when we're honest about our sin, when we acknowledge what it is, don't cover it up, bring it to God, confess it to God, ask for his forgiveness, we can be sure that he always does. His answer is never, I'll think about it. His answer is always yes, because of Jesus. Because Jesus died and paid the penalty for sin. Because he did what is necessary to forgive our sins. God has committed himself to forgiving all who place their faith in Jesus. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus secured the faithful forgiveness of his Father through his death. In Christ, God is committed to forgiving everyone who trusts in Jesus. Jesus died to bear the weight of our sin that we could not bear on our own. He died to take on the heaviness so that we could be light. Jesus' righteousness is enough to cover our shame. Jesus' blood is enough to cleanse the sin of our heart. We can be forgiven. We can be justified. We can know the flourishing of forgiveness in Christ. So, in your sin, acknowledge your sin as sin. Don't cover it up. Confess it 
to God and receive his forgiveness purchased by the blood of Jesus. That's the flourishing of forgiveness that David wants us to consider. Well, next we need to hear this encouragement in verses 6 through 9. Resist the pull to procrastinate. Resist the pull to procrastinate. Now remember, there was another Salah at the end of verse 5, right before verse 6. So listen up. Listen up, because David is about to say something relevant and highly applicable. Verse 6, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. David gave his testimony for a purpose. That word, therefore, shows That the reason he told this testimony is for others. So others would hear and respond. There's an urgency about what David is showing us here. He says he wants other people to respond to God and offer the same kind of prayer that he offered when he may be found. When God may be found. In other words, he shares this testimony so that others will replicate it. But he says, do it before it's too late. Don't delay. Don't wait. Don't drag your feet on confessing your sin to God. Isaiah 55 verses 6 and 7 says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Uh, David uses this picture here of of, of waters, this picture of of the rush of great waters. And as you hear that word, think about the flood of Genesis, this flood of waters of God's judgment against the wickedness of humanity on the earth. There was a time when humanity could have repented. There was a time when God waited, when his patience continued. But then one day, the door of the ark closed, the waters came, and the entire world was destroyed by the judgment of God. For those who do not call on God in time, one day it will be too late. For those who do call on God in time, that the waters of judgment will not touch them. That's what David says here. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. That is the one who does offer a prayer to God when he may be found. For those who do trust in God, who don't delay, there is forgiveness And that forgiveness looks like protection from judgment. David goes on to describe that protection more in verse 7. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Salah. Uh, The forgiveness of God is, is shelter. It's security. 
For those who trust in Christ, God surrounds them with shouts of deliverance. We're invited to participate in the the victory celebration and sing songs of of joy and, and victory and triumph because our enemies of sin and death have been defeated by the blood of Jesus. When we are in the hiding place of the blood of Jesus, we can be surrounded with the shouts of victory, the song of triumph. Of 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 57, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the song of victory, the shout of deliverance that God surrounds those who are in Christ. Now there's another Salah at the end of verse 7. So listen up to verses 8 and 9. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. These verses are God's instruction to us through David. David has already been providing instruction for us. Uh, He's encouraging us to take our sin to God. He's instructed us by his own example. He's instructed us by directly calling for us to do this. But he's continuing this instruction from God through him to us. And his instruction to us is, don't be a horse. Don't be a mule. Why? Why? Well, because they don't go where they're supposed to go on their own. They have to be led. They don't choose to do what they should do. David's instruction to us is don't require a bit and bridle. Don't be stubborn. Don't procrastinate. Don't go just wherever you want to go. Turn to God. Choose Give up your resistance. Stop digging in your heels. Stop dragging your feet. Turn to God. Turn to him for forgiveness while you still can, while he may be found. So, If you have not yet turned away from sin and turned to Jesus to forgive you of your sins, don't wait. Don't wait. Now, I know you might be asking questions, you might be pondering things, and man, I want to I sit with you, I want to talk about those things, I want to answer your questions, I want to help you wrestle, uh, but don't wait. Don't drag your feet. God is showing you patience right now. The fact that you have breath in your lungs, the fact that you're able to ponder and wrestle and Think about God. Think about salvation. Think about whether or not you want to follow Jesus as Lord. That is God's patience to you. And praise God for it. But he is calling you to repent. One day it will be too late. One day the door of the ark shuts. One day the waters come and they don't stop. Turn with me to 2 Peter 3 verses 9 and 10.
Let's actually back that up to, uh, to verse 5. 2 Peter 3, verse 5. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water, by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. There's the flood of Genesis. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Don't wait. God is patient, and his patience towards you is so that you will repent, that you'll turn to him, trust in him to save you from your sins. Don't wait, though. Don't wait. There will be a day of destruction that is coming, like the flood, only, only worse, more severe, more final. There is a day of destruction coming. There is punishment coming on all who have rebelled against God. Don't wait. Uh, this is obviously a warning in Psalm 32. This is a warning that David wants to give us. Don't be like a horse or a mule. Don't be stubborn. Don't require a bit and bridle. Turn to God willingly. Choose to confess your sins to God. Uh, but this is a warning not just for those who have never trusted in Christ. This is as much a warning to those of us who call ourselves Christians as well. If you're in 2 Peter, flip back just a little ways to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4, starting in, uh, excuse me, Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3, starting in verse 12. The author says, take care Brothers, in other words, those who would call themselves Christians, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. According to Hebrews 3 and, and verse 13 here, those who share in Christ, those who are real Christians, are not those who made a one-time decision. Those who share in Christ are those who continue in repentance and faith all the way to the end. 
And so even if you are here today and you call yourself a Christian, you need to hear the warning just as much as those who have never trusted in Christ. Don't fall away. Don't let your heart become hardened by sin. Sin is deceptive. Sin wants you to think that because of Christ, you should just sin more that grace may abound more. That is from the devil himself. Don't play with fire. Don't let sin deceive you into thinking you can keep it near you and still continue in the faith. Don't fall away. Don't let your heart be hardened. Don't let sin deceive you. Today, you can repent. So repent. Let go of it. Get rid of it. Because it won't be today much longer. Resist the pull to procrastinate. Finally, as we return to Psalm 32 in the last two verses, choose the joy of justification. Choose the joy of justification. David ends this psalm just like he began, celebrating the joy of being right with God. Look at verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Living in sin leads to sorrow. Uh, We don't have to look past David's example in Psalm 32 to see that. Remember, verses 3 and 4, bones wasting away, groaning all day long. Hand of God's judgment heavy on him, strength dried up by the heat of summer. This is the only, this agony, this sorrow is the only alternative to the joy of justification. There is being right with God and receiving his justification and his righteousness and salvation, and there is sorrow and agony and emptiness. These are our choices. That is the reality of the sorrow that sin leads to. But if we repent. If we trust in Jesus to save us from our sins, we receive God's steadfast love. That word steadfast love is God's commitment to love and save and preserve and bless his people. He doesn't just kind of dispense his love randomly, willy-nilly. When he chooses a people, he sets his love on them and promises and commits himself to them for eternity. Sally Lloyd-Jones in uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is an excellent Bible uh, for kids that points them to how all Scripture is about Christ. Um, Sally Lloyd-Jones translates this word, steadfast love, this way. God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's what those who trust in Christ receive when we come to him for forgiveness. And then in verse 11, David wraps up this psalm with a call to worship. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Those who have trusted in Yahweh can be glad in him. Those who have received his steadfast love can experience his joy, can celebrate him. They can shout for joy with shouts of deliverance because they have been justified by God. 
Now here in these last couple of verses, there are some terms that the Bible uses often. It's the terms wicked and righteous, especially in the Psalms and in the Proverbs. These are terms that are used often, wicked and righteous. And, and on their face, it might seem that these are just uh, words that simply mean some people who do good and some people who do evil. And there's some, some general truth to that, but the key question we have to ask when we see the word wicked in verse 10, righteous in verse 11, is how does a, how does a person become a part of one of these groups? The wicked, the righteous. What makes a person part of one group and not the other? Well, here's what is not true. It is not true that we're all born neutral and then we kind of grow up and make some choices, and some of us choose a life of wickedness, and some of us choose a life of good, and so then there's the wicked and the righteous. That is not true. What the Bible clearly teaches is that all of us are born wicked. All of us on our own from birth are wicked, born in unrighteousness. None of us is born as the righteous. None of us can grow up into becoming the righteous. We are all on our own wicked. The only way to escape is to trust God's steadfast love in Christ, to trust his forgiveness of our sins. And the point of Psalm 32 is that God is inviting the wicked to acknowledge their sin and to be forgiven, to become the righteous. Uh, that's David's invitation. That's why he's giving this testimony. That's why he wants us to hear it, so that we would be a part of the righteous and celebrate the joy of being part of the righteous. Through faith, wicked people are declared righteous in Christ. This is, again, the doctrine of justification. Before we saw in verse 2 that part of justification is that when we trust in Christ, God no longer counts our sin against us. That's part of it. But there's more. Justification also means that God counts us as righteous. So it's not just that he doesn't count our sin against us. It's that he positively counts us as righteous. Gives us Jesus' righteousness on the record uh, on our record in heaven. Another way to put it is that God doesn't just cancel our debt. He also deposits infinite wealth into our account. That's justification. He doesn't count our sin against us, and he does count us righteous. Turn with me to Romans chapter 4. And you'll see why I'm turning to Romans 4 as we read it. Romans chapter 4, starting in verse and to the one who does not work but believes, trusts, has faith in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Psalm 32, 1 and 2. The righteous, when the Bible describes the righteous, the righteous are the righteous, not because they worked to earn it. The righteous are the righteous because God declares them righteous through faith in Jesus. 
The righteous are no more than wicked people who trust in Jesus to forgive them of their sins and count them righteous. But there's even more than that. Because as we saw in verse 2, the flourishing person is not just the one against whom God counts no sin. This person is also the person who has no deceit in their spirit. Well, likewise here in verses 10 and 11, it's not just that those who trust Yahweh are counted righteous on the books of heaven. It's not just that they're regarded as righteous. They are also upright in heart. David says, the blessing of God's steadfast love in Christ is that he takes wicked people and he doesn't count their sin against them, but it gets better than that. He also does count them righteous and it gets better than that because he helps them become more practically righteous in their actual lives. This is justification to rejoice in. This is a God to celebrate and be glad in. What does it look like then to be glad in the Lord as David calls us to? What does it look like to be glad in the Lord as those who have been declared righteous though we were wicked? Well, we can literally rejoice, right? We, I mean, even just as we gather today, we're lifting our songs of praise, celebrating this God, shouting for joy. But also, we can be glad in the Lord by living in the good of what Christ has done for us. Part of the way that we uh, are to be glad in the Lord, as David says in Psalm 32, 11, is to live in the good, live in the joy of justification, to live out the reality that Christ has formed in us. How do we do that? Well, first, resist the temptation to trust in other sources of justification. Resist the temptation to trust in other sources of justification. Uh, if we're honest, we've all experienced that heaviness, that weight, that agony that comes from unconfessed sin. Don't run to anything other than Jesus for a sense that all is right in the world. Don't run to any other source of refuge for a sense that I'm justified in what I did. Resist the temptation to trust other sources of justification. But, but also, part of living in the good of what Christ has done is to live out the uprightness that Christ wants to work in us. So put off those things that, by God's grace, he no longer counts against you. Uh, we sin. In Christ, he doesn't count them against us, so let's put them off. We don't need them anymore. Acknowledge those sins. Acknowledge the ways that you have sinned against God. Confess them to him. Repent, receive forgiveness, and put on that which God has given you in Christ. In Christ, we are declared righteous on the books of heaven. And in Christ, that reality that is true before God in heaven can be increasingly the reality in our hearts and in our lives. Freedom from deceit in our hearts. Uprightness of heart because of what Christ has done for us. We can live in the flourishing, not only of being declared righteous, but the flourishing of being increasingly made righteous practically because of Christ. This is David's testimony. His testimony as an invitation to us to not miss out 
on the joy of being right with God. What does the testimony of your life say to others? What does the testimony of your life say to others? Do they see in you the flourishing of forgiveness? Do they hear you urging them to resist the pull to procrastinate? Are they drawn to the joy that you have because you've been justified? May we all live in the good of God's righteousness, God's justification. May we live in the joy of justification such that the testimony of our lives would say to others, don't miss out. Don't miss out on this. What God has given to me, God wants to give to you. Don't miss out on the joy of being made right with God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the flourishing that you have waiting for all who would acknowledge their sin to you, confess our sins, not cover them up, but take them to you for forgiveness and cleansing by the blood of Jesus Lord, I pray that no one in this room would wait, that no one would delay. But Lord, that we would all forsake our sin and find cleansing in Christ. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.